0: Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. Brett Stevens opens his column in The New York Times this morning by writing, quote, A few days before Barack Obama left office, he invited a small group of conservative writers, all never Trumpers, for a conversation in the White House's Roosevelt Room. The mood was dark. The president was worried about the future of the Republican Party. We worried about the future itself. Someone mentioned the possibility of global thermonuclear war as a plausible outcome of the Trump presidency. Close quote. I'd never heard of that meeting. I'd heard of a meeting George Will hosted for Barack Obama in 2009 as he was coming into office, joined by Bill Kristol, David Brooks and Charles Krauthammer. This other meeting that Stevens writes about in 2017, however, had a better lid on it, I guess. I'm going to guess it was the same group, minus Krauthammer, and adding Stevens. But the funniest line in the opening in that opening is that, quote, "The President, Obama, was worried about the future of the Republican Party." I'm tempted to think of Ben Braddock's line from the Graduate. That's a laugh, Mrs. Robinson. That's a real laugh. I'm sure Barack Obama has been very worried about the future of the Republican Party, just as he'd been worried about its present and past. In fact, I think it's probably true that people like Bill Kristol and Brett Stevens are far more worried about the Democratic Party than Obama is the Republican Party, likely so that some spoils from it might inure to them. But there's another point here. We read Brett Stevens when we read him for two reasons. A. He's a good writer. B, we want to know what he thinks because, presumably, he thinks smartly. Same with anyone we read, I presume. But when a small group is giving advice and projecting their thoughts in advising of all people, the president of the United States, even an outgoing president, you'd think they'd be at the top of their game at their best, their sharpest, trying to be right, accurate, credible, smart. And this group, again, I'm guessing it was Stevens, Crystal, Brooks, perhaps George Will as well, This group came up with the idea that Trump would launch or bring about thermonuclear war. What else did they think? According to Stevens, they predicted the stock market would never recover, would stumble into war with North Korea or Iran. The free press would be muzzled. Vladimir Putin would rule Donald Trump through blackmail. And Trump-appointed judges would dismantle the rule of law and overturn the verdict of elections. Who needs conservatives when you already had those predictions from Rachel Maddow and Paul Krugman? That's point one. Point two, each and every prediction was wrong. Precisely, exactly 180 degrees wrong. The exact opposite of everything they predicted is what happened. The stock market soared beyond anyone's best expectations. North Korea and Iran were not only tamed. Two of Iran's leading warmongers were removed from the earth. The Ukraine was armed to oppose Russia and more sanctions were put on Putin and Russia than ever before. Trump's judges were from the finest wish list and dreams of every right thinking conservative as if it were the Reagan Justice Department and White House counsel's office vetting and nominating them. And as far as crushing the press, the press had never been more active, nor did they ever see a president who gave as much time as Trump did to the press, all of which begs a certain question. Why, again, do we read these people who get things not just wrong, but monumentally wrong, especially when they are supposedly at their best, advising a president or outgoing president of the United States, trying to look good and smart? One other thing, Crystal, Will, Stevens, Brooks, each and every one of them is strongly pro-Israel, among the strongest supporters of Israel in America. They got that wrong, too. On the two countries they care most about, America and Israel, they didn't get things wrong. They got every single thing wrong, every single thing. But to them, of course, Donald Trump and his supporters were out of touch, wrong, blind, misdirected. It's kind of like Neville Chamberlain criticizing Churchill or Jimmy Carter trying to criticize Reagan. Except even Chamberlain and Carter got a few things right here and there. For four years, though five really, these supposedly deep thinkers and public intellectuals railed at Trump and us, telling us how wrong we all were and how right they were, only to be miserable failures in everything they suggested, guessed, explained, and predicted. Of course for them there's never a consequence, for their words and worries don't have any dramatic real world real world consequences or implications. They can say anything they want. They are To quote Hillary Clinton, Clinton, just words. Here's the next enterprise. It's already begun, and it will be fodder for writers for a while. Defining Trumpism and defining it down. Just as they were predicting what Trump was going in, the new project is defining what Trumpism is as he prepares to leave office, you'll see column after column here and there stating Trumpism doesn't stand for much, but is rather a loose colligation of disparate ideas built around a figurehead or cult leader. Well, that's just plain wrong, too. You have a movement that spans the adherents from Newt Gingrich to Christy Noam, from Tom Cotton to Ron DeSantis, from Candace Owens to Mike Pompeo, from the Claremont Institute in Hillsdale to Franklin Graham and Mike Huckabee. Religious, non-religious, cops, intellectuals, high school and college dropouts, single moms, large families, blacks, whites, Jews, Hispanics, and some what we think of as America. It hates communism, and it's the only movement in America, really, that still talks about and teaches what communism is or cares about it. It hates crime, and it's the only movement in America that supports law and order. It hates war, and it supports the military. In the words of Charles Kessler, it's a movement that loves America and celebrates grateful, hard-working Americans of all colors, religions, occupations, from Minnesota policemen to Maine lobstermen. No identity politics, political correctness, or anarcho-socialism here. And no cancel culture or statue toppling either. Boy, that's something to really despise, isn't it? Well, yes, it is if you don't think America is great and worth preserving, if you don't think your own convictions are quite right, if you are hesitant or tentative about American values, and if you place personalities above principles, which is exactly what each of these soi-disant conservatives did for five years, as they got everything in policy any conservative could possibly hope for and thought near out of reach wrong. So when we talk about legacy conservatism or Conservatism Inc. or the failures of conservatism in the past, we're talking about these kinds of folks. I don't know, as nobody can know, what the next presidential election looks like. But as you've heard me say, the bench has never been better. And my point about that is when we look at our pantheon of conservative greats, it's a rather small temple from Lincoln to Coolidge from Goldwater to Reagan, they were great, but they were anomalies. Far more common were the Bushes and Doles, for example. Think of it this way. A Bush or a Dole was on every presidential ticket from 1976 to 2004, dominating the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. That's a generation. Goldwater and Reagan, like Trump, had to battle the GOP establishment hammer and tong not even George Will or William Buckley were original supporters of Reagan in 1979, 1980. And now we have the opportunity to reestablish the set point. Think about it this way. How very irrelevant does Mitt Romney seem right now? And how very relevant does someone like Ron DeSantis and Christy Noems and Andy Big and Jim Jordan seem? Bill Kristol and Fox News or talk radio? Watch Mike Pompeo, too, and Richard Grinnell. We say this not because we want to win, but because we see what's at stake. Nothing short of every American norm. And it's funny. The left and never Trumpers spoke of Donald Trump's breaking of norms. The only norm he broke was the embarrassment of speaking up full-throatedly for American values. What values are those? Well, today's Bill of Rights Day. Have you heard about that on any other talk radio or anywhere else today? So let's start with the Constitution and move to the Bill of Rights. When you get there, ask yourselves a few questions. The First Amendment, freedom of speech and religion. How stand those and who's tried to protect them the most? Second Amendment, who wants to eviscerate it and who spoke up for it? A fair justice system that took no account of party, philosophy, or anything else is embodied in the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendments. Power of the people over the government is embodied in the Tenth Amendment. It may be at its lowest nadir in history as a result of the left and the left's enablers on the right. A foreign policy poised against terrorists and Marxist Maoists. A set of domestic policies reducing the individual to categorization based on Marxist principles, be they race or class. Our friends at Issues and Insights ask this. What is the United States of America? a society of elitists versus the rest, a culture that's given up on itself, a land of censorship, a nation in which policies and orientation are not merely matters of disagreement but causes of internal and irreconcilable turmoil? It was supposed to be none of these. But today it seems a foreign place, with more in common with the many dystopias of literature than anything the founders of a free nation ever imagined. We can give in to it, yield to it, or we can do what we do best, show we are Americans after all, and for that one reason and one reason only, because America matters, and we shan't be ashamed to say that any more than we should be to think it. Um, As conservatives, as really all Americans, a Bill of Rights attitude, uh, it probably didn't make any news that you saw, but indeed... um, President Trump did issue a proclamation on it. He wrote nearly 250 years ago, heroes of our revolution signed the declaration of independence, offering a bold enumeration of inalienable rights endowed to us by our creator in time with independence secured from a tyrannical monarchy. Our nation etched these principles of liberty and equality into the law of our fledgling nation. When we ratified our constitution, the revolutionary idea they embodied that certain individual rights are beyond the reach of government has resonated around the world. Today, we celebrate our sacred rights, an example they have set for the rest of history. James Madison, who drafted the Bill of Rights text, was initially skeptical of the need to secure specific rights explicitly in the Constitution, believing the checks and balances inherent in our system of government would operate to achieve that objective. But he came to recognize the value that the Bill of Rights could provide and work to ensure that the individual rights and freedoms of Americans were precisely enumerated in the highest law of the land. Madison was acutely aware that while a government formed to serve its people is just and legitimate power lodged as it must in human hands will ever be liable to abuse, as he wrote. Accordingly, he worked to imprint essential human rights, including the rights to peaceful assembly, freedom of speech, and free exercise of religion. In our foundational legal text, empowering generations of Americans by protecting them from government abuses. Now, one of the interesting things I have to note about Donald Trump's proclamation is he does it right. He calls it um, freedom of speech in the First Amendment. Uh, Would that the rest of government maintained that notion of the First Amendment, including too often the Supreme Court? which doesn't much longer speak of freedom of speech, but freedom of expression, which is not a word the founders used. They said speech. They said press. They said assembly. They were pretty skilled with the English language, our founders were, Madison particularly. If they wanted to cover everything, they could have, but they didn't. They could have used the word expression. They didn't. They used the word speech. They used the word religion. They used the word press. And by doing so, that meant something. Speech meant something. When the Supreme Court converted speech to expression, that meant something too. That meant a departure, a departure from the First Amendment. Now we could cover, to put it no worse, exotic dancing. Now we could embrace flag-burning Now we could embrace all manner of expletive and cover that under the First Amendment. It's just expression, after all. By the way, expression is an interesting word itself. It means to force out. It has nothing to do with what speech really is. Speech is something that, I guess in its best of forms, enables contemplation, conversation, cogitation. Expression, none of that. So, for example in the famous case, was it Miller v. California, where the protester at the courthouse had a jacket with the words, with the embroidery F the draft, except it was filled in. I mean, it wasn't filled in, just said F the draft. That was found to be um, freedom of expression. Now, the interesting thing about that is the Supreme Court, when they said that that was protected by the First Amendment, they gave a tell. They gave a tell that they perhaps aren't as um, – what's the word I want here? Um, they, they aren't as gullible as they want us to think, for they know F the draft has a certain meaning, doesn't it? It doesn't have an implication to do with the weather or perhaps the windows not being closed all the way. We know exactly what those words mean, don't we, F the draft? We know what the message is that's trying to be imparted. So, too, should we know what speech is when that's what was put in the founding document of the First Amendment. And so, too, should we know what it was meant for. The Constitution tells us a Republican form of government. The founders were not neutral on what kind of government we should have. They guaranteed to the states in the Constitution a Republican form of government of government which always made it curious to me as to why federal and the Supreme Court could guarantee the rights of, shall we say, expression to Nazis and Communists. It's a controversial point of view. Has a few adherents. I'm one of them. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy.